it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Our next guest hosts a daily podcast, fashions himself an Oregon Ducks fan. Coming at you from uh, Central Oregon today. TV play-by-play voice for the Southern Utah Athletics Thunderbirds. Host of Locked On Ducks, Locked On Pac-12. I've been on his show. Spencer McLaughlin joining us to talk about all things uh, Pac-12, all things Oregon Ducks. Uh, First of all, I want to know what you're doing in Central Oregon. What are you doing? What's going on? Um, well, the first three days that I got here, I played golf every one of them, and my body physically needed a rest today. But we'll be back on the golf course <laughs> probably as soon as tomorrow. Is this a trip? Like, give us your history. Like, where did you grow up? What, you know, because I, I know you host the podcast. I know you focus on the Pac-12. I know you focus on the Oregon Ducks, uh, among other things, uh, in the Pac-12. But, Give us an idea of why you're in Central Oregon at all. Like, you know, is this something you do? Well, th- this is just uh, another place where I can do my, my podcast from. Uh, my parents are uh, in the process of completing a house down here at, uh, at, at Black Butte. And the nice. office I've uh, insured is, is all, all set up for me to be able to work here all summer because when – uh, you know, college sports end for, for Southern Utah, which was back uh, last weekend in April, first weekend in May, sometime around there. You know, the shows can kind of go wherever I go, and Central Oregon is a pretty pretty awesome place to be. And, of course, it works out weather-wise because Utah is great, you know, most most of the year, but then it starts to get kind of hot right now, come back up to Oregon, which I will always call home for my entire life, and, you know, get to see old old friends and family and just, being out here, it's 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 an absolute absolute blast, and I, I honestly, for as, as avid of a golfer as I am, I have not sufficiently explored Central Oregon golf enough. I've added two new courses to my uh, my my list of places I've played over the weekend, but I got like ten more to get through this summer. I uh, I envy you where you are, and I appreciate you giving <laughs> us your time. Um, yeah, give me an, give me an idea. You know, you you grow up an Oregon fan. And then now hosting a podcast uh, on the Locked On Network about the Ducks, about the Pac-12, that 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 has to feel pretty good to you. Uh, it's the the coolest thing I've ever done is just to decide to go down this path for for my career and you know getting to like I I love the the Pac-12 pod. Don't don't get me wrong. Like my boss asked me one time, uh, he wasn't giving me an ultimatum. It's just like a fun hypothetical of you know, would you rather do the Pac-12 show or, or the Oregon show. And I told him, you know, I'm really glad I don't have to choose because I love, I love doing both of them. I, I think there's, there, there are a lot more angles to take with the Pac-12 show, as you know, you know, especially now with realignment and everything that kind of, you know, tests my, my capabilities as, as a sports talk host and, you know, crafting segments and opinions, you know, is a little bit more, uh, I think, in, intensive of, of, of sorts on, on the Pac-12 show, but the, the Ducks one is, you know, more more special to me personally because I've just been an Oregon fan my my entire life, and to get to talk with Duck fans, you know, through the pod and the mailbag and everything every single day is just 
beyond an absolute treat for me. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that that, that passion and love for the ducks is, uh, reflected every day in, in the show and, you know, the support that I've gotten and where my shows are at. I just, I, I feel grateful for it every single day. And it's just the greatest thing I've ever done. Let's talk first about the ducks. Uh, big questions right. in your mind, you know, Dan Lanning's first year, he wins 10 games. You know, some people weren't happy. But I thought it was a pretty solid first year. I think there's some questions that he needs to answer. But in your mind, Spencer, what you know, when you look at this Oregon season one transition to season two for Dan Lanning, where's your mind? Yeah, I think solid is the word to use. And I think one of the encouraging things for Duck fans right now is is kind of twofold. Number one, uh, we didn't feel like we had a, a great season. We had a good, not great season. And the recruiting is at as high a level as we've ever seen it with, with the Ducks. And they're, I, I think, going to be pushing for the best class in, in program history for the 2024 cycle. And, you know, there's still a long way to go, but they are in the running for some big-time names. They've already got the number eight class in the country with high school recruits. So I think that's the, the encouraging thing, uh, number one. And, and then number two is, you know, how close we really were to having that, that season in 2022 be not solid but great outstanding amazing incredible because you know it was a nine and three regular season and they're two plays away from from going 11 and one now they're also if you looked at it maybe a couple plays away you know fourth down against uh washington state for instance that they converted when they were down two scores they're they're maybe a play or two away from going uh, eight and four last season so you know college football it just operates on on the margins and such such a big way but the margins are are often so small and I, I think there were a lot of encouraging things for the ducks underlanding year one i think there's still you know a, a decent amount of room to grow but you know it's hard to not be encouraged by what he's doing on on the recruiting trail and the all-in effort that that he's making there and we know how important that is for oregon to get back to the playoff or god willing win a national championship one day but i i think from you know a, a schematic standpoint and just you know, being a CEO, establishing a culture, bringing in and developing talent. I think there are a lot of encouraging signs on on that front as well. And, you know, I, I think it's, it was a solid season because it was a good year uh, previously as well under Mario Cristobal in 2021, beat Ohio State, and then, you know, have those blowout losses against uh, Utah that kind of took the shine off of that win a, a little bit in the eyes of some Duck fans, I know. But, I look at a place like Oklahoma with Brent Venables and say, hey, just because you're a storied program that wins a lot does not mean that, you know, you're young, defensive-minded coach. Venables is a lot older than, than Lanning, but still you're, you know, new defensive-minded coach that brings a lot of excitement to the program. doesn't mean he's automatically going to work. So I, I think it's uh, somewhat of a prove-it year for Lanning in, in the second season with regards to, you know, how how he's viewed in, in Pac-12 coaching circles and being, you know, truly an elite coach up there. But if he goes out and, you know, has another 10-win season, factoring the bowl game or not, it, it's hard to not look at it and go, boy, he could, he could really be building some, something special here. Spencer McLaughlin with us, Locked On Ducks, Locked On Pac-12. That's the podcast you need to check out. Uh, Spencer, how you mentioned national championship, you know, God willing. How far away does Oregon feel – Maybe in the four-team playoff era, maybe looking forward to a 12-team era, how far away do they feel from being in a playoff in your mind and then maybe contending in a playoff? Well, I want, I want to start with the four versus the 12-team playoff, John. I don't think the calculus changes for winning a national championship. 
you, you still have to recruit at a high level. You still have to have, you know, good or above average quarterback play. I mean, there's more than one way to, you know, execute winning or getting to a national championship. Like the Ducks in uh, 2010, I think, were driven by philosophy when they got there. And in 2014, yeah, the philosophy was a part of it, but having the best player in the history of the program also uh, probably aided them in, in that pursuit. And Mariota winning the Heisman Trophy and such. But I, I don't think that a 12-team playoff gives you, you know, a greater chance to win a national championship because if at the end of the year you're ranked, you know, ninth in the country and you've had a couple of losses and you scrape by a couple wins, it's like then you were never going to be a national championship caliber team. I think Oregon even, you know, learned that in, in a harsh way with those two losses to Washington and Oregon State a season ago. But just because you can get close to it throughout the course of the season doesn't mean you actually have everything that you need. The Ducks have to have defensive growth on that side of the ball. But, it, you know, I, I think for, for Lanning, you know, it's bringing in the sorts of players that he wants that can uh, allow his defense to thrive. And it's also, you know, something else that it is a continued test for head coaches in college football consistently, which is can you hire good coordinators after your really good one goes to take a head coaching position elsewhere? Because the best programs in the country are going to have – I mean, Kirby Smart has won back-to-back -back national championships. Guess what happened? He lost his offensive coordinator. He's got to go out and make the, make the right hire. And I forgot who they brought in, but that's part of being a head coach. And, you know, Nick Saban has had – success doing that for a long time. He's had Steve Sarkeesian and uh, Bill O'Brien and uh, Lane Kiffin all come through and they've all had success and the constant has, has been Kiffin. So I think that's, you know, part of the test here for, for landing and any coach that's trying to uh, get to that level of college football playoff or national championship is, do you know how to not be reliant upon, you know, your coordinators or coaches the way like Annette Orgeron was at LSU, like that worked for one year, but, there was no sustainability uh, to, to what he was doing there because he lost his coordinators and then everything, you know, kind of went to hell <laughs> like pretty, pretty quickly down there for him. So I think he's, uh, he being landing has got that, that challenge in front of him. I like the Will Stein hire. Uh, I, I do. It very much fits. It's kind of in the Kenny Dillingham mold just without the power five experience, but he's got more play calling experience. So I, I think those are kind of the biggest tests is, can he recruit and build a defense that is significantly improved from what the Ducks have been defensively the last couple of seasons? And then can you continue to, to bring in offensive coordinators who can allow your offense to put up, you know, over 500 yards a game like they did this past season? Yeah, and I, and I think the thing that surprised me, were you surprised that the defense, with Dan Lanning known as a defensive guy, didn't seem to have teeth or didn't seem to have an identity? Or could that be explained, Spencer, by maybe, hey, it's a first-year coach and these aren't his guys? I think you can choose to explain it that way. I, I was let down a little bit by, you know, the defensive growth I thought we could see. Um, there was actually some. It, it's, it's really hard for Oregon fans to, to realize something like that. But if you look at the numbers from 2021 to 2022, there was improvement on that side of the ball, not as much as we perhaps would have liked to have seen as Duck fans, but, you know, the biggest thing that was missing was a pass rush. It was their lowest pass rush and sack rate since, like, 2001. Like, it, it was historically bad in that sense, and that's one of the reasons they couldn't get off the field on, on third down. Like, you look at the Washington game, if you give Michael Penix, who, you know, is definitely playing himself into the first or second round of the NFL draft next year, if you give him time to sit back there, drink a cup of coffee, pat the ball three times, and fire, 
he's going to pick you apart because he's got really good wide receivers. And Oregon's inability to create pressure last year, I think, is what really did in the defense most of all. Uh, you know, they need better production out of their linebackers. A couple more big plays from safeties would be good. But really, you know, corners are going to thrive when they have a pass rush that doesn't require them to cover, you know, really good receivers for five and six seconds because that's just asking – that's just asking far too much. So I think that they've revamped on the defensive line. They're continuing to build at that position. That was a priority in the 2023 recruiting class and looks like it will be at some level again for 2024 and beyond. I think that's the right approach because if you look at what Lanning knows, it's, you know, being the defense coordinator at Georgia. What do you think of when you think of those Georgia defenses? They got a bunch of big guys up front. They had a number one pick in the NFL draft. They had Jalen Carter. They had Kobe Dean in the front seven. Just a, a bunch of big-time dudes in, in the front seven, particularly along the defensive line. I think that's what was missing for the Ducks uh, a season ago. But, you know, getting Pope Almavai back, bringing in Jordan Birch, adding Mateo Uyunglele, a five-star true freshman, I think those are substantial steps forward in the right direction for the Ducks uh, really making defensive strides this year. We're talking to Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Ducks podcast, Locked On the Pac-12. Let's pivot to the Pac-12. First, uh, the Colorado question. Okay, how much have you talked about Colorado on the podcast, and what what do you see for Coach Prime in season one? Well, I I talk about him a a decent amount, though admittedly not as much because I think we're just kind of in – you know, when, when he first got to Colorado, it was big, big news, and Colorado's relevant, Colorado's interesting, Colorado's changing the game, Colorado is polarizing, and Dion is polarizing, and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's been long enough now to where, you know, at least for, for me, it's certainly an interesting topic I, that I think pops up a little bit more in earnest once the season starts, because we're all just so interested to see, well, what is this going to be? You know, like, what what can they actually do in year one? And you'll find Colorado fans, uh, at least that I've interacted with through through my, my Pac-12 show, who, you know, are realistic that uh, it's, it's still not going to be a great season. There's a long way to go. And you can find Colorado fans as well. And Kevin Borba of our Locked on Buffs show can uh, speak to this as well. But, you know, there are fans out there who think Dion is the greatest thing since sliced bread for college football and for Colorado, and he's going to win eight games in year one. And, Look, you believe whatever you'd like. I'm, I'm most curious to see what it looks like, but their preseason win total is tied for the lowest in the Pac-12 with Stanford. And I'm sure you know, John, Stanford doesn't have a lot of great vibes, though they got Elijah Brown committed in 2024, which is huge, huge, high, highly rated four-star quarterback there. But that's, that's not a team that you want to be associated with right now with regards to having success in 2023. So, I, I think, you know, on the realignment front, Colorado to the Big 12 is a, a disaster plan for them, you know, as in they have it in their back pocket if it gets to that point. But I don't think – I know that that's not where they want to go. I don't think that's where they end up going. And I think this will all kind of quiet down once the media deal gets uh, gets finalized, which hopefully is soon, but also once football actually starts and we can, you know, watch watch the games that, that we actually love. Because at the end of the day, that's what this all comes back to, right? We're interested in realignment because of how it affects football. We're interested in the portal because of how it affects, you know, your on-field results. But, you know, I, I think three wins would be a good year for the Buffs. If they got four, it would be outstanding. Five would be amazing. If they got bowl eligible, an SEC team might swoop in and hire Dion out from under Colorado. I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you are bullish on the Cal Bears. Why? <laughs> what do you see that no one else sees? 
Well, yeah, I mean, bullish is, is a relative term. I'm bullish on them going over <laughs> four and a half wins this year. That's, okay. that's my bullish take on, on Cal. I'm not listing them as a conference contender in here. But here, here's my thinking, John. Justin Wilcox is going into year seven. And one of those is the COVID year, so sixth full year, whatever you want to call it, yada, yada, yada. So he's going into year seven. I know Cal doesn't have incredibly high standards in terms of, you know, athletic performance. It took him too long to fire Mark Fox uh, running the men's basketball program. But they made a good hire there in Mark Madsen, who's coming from a conference that I cover at Southern Utah in the WAC. Utah Valley, he had a lot of success there. That was a really good hire. And they're seeing the early results of it there. So I just wonder if there isn't kind of a shift in mindset up there or rather down there in, uh, in Berkeley with regards to, you know, what their standards are. And I see a guy going into year seven who hasn't won more than eight games in a season, who hasn't developed or delivered a winning record in conference play yet. And I think that he's coaching and making the sorts of moves that, that kind of reflect the urgency of the situation here. So I think that's, that's a component. Number one, number two, would it surprise anyone listening to the show right now to know that the California golden bears have a top 20 rated transfer portal class in the 2023 cycle. This is not Stanford. They are a great academic school, but they're not as restrictive as Stanford. So they've been able to bring in some players to help their cause. That's, that's the second thing. Third thing is they've revamped their offensive philosophy. And as, as you know as well, and other people who are Pac-12 fans have seen, you know, Cal teams over the years, they've never been terrible. I mean, they were, you know, what you'd call a quote-unquote quote, quote unquote, good four and eight last year. They lost a lot of really, really close games, usually because their offense couldn't keep up. Their defense actually took a step back a season ago. But the offense has always been the Achilles heel under Justin Wilcox. And he got rid of his offensive coordinator, Bill Musgrave, got rid of their offensive line coach. That was a weakness a year ago as well. They bring in a couple new coaches at those positions. And then Sam Jackson is the guy that gives me some hope for the Bears offensively. Because I trust Wilcox to build a defense. We've seen him do it time and time again at Cal. I think they bounce back. They get Brett Johnson back this year on the defensive line, who's their best player the last couple of years, who have been out with injuries. And Sam Jackson is a four-star quarterback recruit, went to TCU, wasn't seeing the field, comes over to Cal. He's got a big arm. He is crazy fast and dynamic, and they just haven't had a guy like that. So new offensive philosophy, new players, and urgency is kind of the succinct way of why I say I could see Cal being a bowl-eligible team this year. That and that's all right. That's bullish then. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> as bullish as it can yeah. be. Look and and look, I think he's a good coach and they took a step backward and I know there's a lot of questions at Cal with transfer portal, NIL, academic requirements. Um if 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 Justin Wilcox can get to a bowl game, it's gonna be a major victory for that football program. We're talking to Spencer Absolutely. McLaughlin, locked on Pac twelve podcast. Uh, let's talk a little Oregon State, all right? So you, you've seen them. You saw them beat Oregon in that Civil War rivalry game. Uh, Jonathan Smith uh, is always acting like he knows something the rest of us don't. Uh, that coaching <laughs> staff stayed together. Still a question at quarterback. How big a question is that for you, Spencer? It's, it's a question, and I think the question is, how does the potential increased production or at least capability at the quarterback position counteract a potential defensive regression. Now, when you had the best or second-best defense in the Pac-12 a season ago, regressing on that side because of lost personnel through the Beavs is 
you know, relative, right? Like if, if, if Stanford were to somehow take a step back defensively, I don't know how they could do that after last year, but let's say they did that. Like that, like that would be indicative of being really bad. If Oregon State is a 20% worse defense than a year ago, that's still top half in the Pac-12. So if that happened, and look, they lost Jane Grant, they lost, lost Alex Austin, they were out, out of eligibility, two key members of that really, really good secondary they do still have Trent Bray, Trent Bray, the defensive coordinator, but then they lose Omar Spates, the linebacker, to LSU, which stinks, and I'm sure it's frustrating to Oregon State fans, and it's hard hard to blame them for, for feeling that way. But I think if the defense is good but not great like it was last year, but you can get DJ Uyunglele to be a good version of himself, not necessarily the best version of himself, but, the, but a good version of himself, then I think your offense – can at the very least be more versatile and more multiple than it was a year ago. Because, you know, you had Gobranson out there, and he was obviously serviceable as a backup quarterback. But DJ can make throws that Gobranson just cannot. And, you know, I, I think back to Oregon State early in the last season when Chance Nolan was the starter before he got hurt. They were taking shots down the field. Like, they, they were pushing it against the secondary, stretching the field, keeping the defense on it, and utilizing – that play action game to take shots, you know, that are beyond the, the, the line of scrimmage or the first down marker, DJ presents that threat once again, that I think they lost really, you know, consistently when they, when they went to, to Ben Goldbranson, where they had to go rather to Ben Goldbranson as, as their starting quarterback. So I, I feel like Oregon state is poised to have a good season. They've got a really favorable schedule. I, I don't know if you've looked at it in depth, John, but, they get key games at home. You know, the San Jose State on the road, San Diego State at home for their non-conference. That's a key split. Because San Diego State on the road, that'd be a little bit tougher. But at Reeser, I, I, don't, I don't see the Aztecs going in there and winning that game. It's one of the toughest places to win in the last couple of years. So I think when you look at how the schedule shakes out for them, it can work. And I, I don't think, you know, at his best at Clemson, DJU was going for 330 yards a game and three touchdowns. At his worst, he was going for 170 yards, two picks, and he was on the bench. If you can just consistently hit somewhere in the middle there, 240 to 260 yards a game, two touchdowns, maybe a pick every now and then because you're taking shots down the field, I think that can take the Oregon State offense to another level because that offensive line is really, really good. All right, so, uh, you know, I think the Pac-12 is going to get a deal. I think they're going to be – a little above the Big 12's number of 31.6 million per school. Uh, if the people I'm talking to are are dealing me straight, that's where they're going to end up. But uh, I also think we're not going to see a deal this week. I think the San Diego State SMU question will linger. I think it's going to spill over into early July. Uh, I would say the first 12 days of July are what I'm looking at. What do you think the narrative becomes, Spencer, in the next two weeks? as the deal progresses towards completion? Well, I don't think the narrative changes until the media deal actually comes to fruition and becomes public information. Now, presidents and chancellors, as, as you've discussed, are likely seeing you know, hard numbers and who the media partners are and whatnot. But somehow, somewhat, and it's honestly amazing that this has been the case, there have been basically no leaks on any of this. Like, nothing substantive has ever leaked out from the Pac-12, it seems. They've kept it very close to the chest, which makes me think, you know, why? And the, and the two reasons that I can come up with 
as to why they would, you know, be so dead set on, hey, no leaks, don't indicate anything, let other people, you know, Pac-12 affiliated or not control the narrative about our conference. We don't care. Either the deal is not going to be as good as they have indicated, or they have something up their sleeve that none of us are expecting, and they are fine with letting us talk ourselves into a circle of insanity and thinking the Pac-12 is dead only for them to pull a rabbit straight out of the hat, present it to the crowd, and get a bunch of oohs and ahs. Those are the only, I think, foreseeable conclusions as to why it's been so tight-lipped and why they just – I mean, George Klyovkov hasn't spoken, I think, since he was on with you and John Wilner in February. So, I mean, there there just aren't any other – conference commissioners that are just not going on the record about anything at all whatsoever for four months at a time, four and a half, five months at a time. So those are the two thoughts that that come into my head. But I I think that we've, you know, it's gone on for so long and I've talked about it a lot on on my show and other shows have as well. I I think that, you know, the narrative on the PAC 12 is pretty set and that's the, the chips are all into the center of the table on the media deal being good enough because if the deal is good enough to keep the conference together if you do beat the big 12 in you know financial uh, value there for the conference then you look like the smartest people on planet you look like someone who invested in apple when it was still in steve jobs garage but (laughs) if you if you're on the other side of that equation and it was all this waiting and all this talk and all this speculation and the number per school per year is about $25 million, then you look much more foolish on, on that front. And look, people are going to try to find a way to get a, get a negative perception out there, the Pac-12, I think one way or, or the other, which is a longer conversation as to why. But I, I think that if you're the Pac-12, it is all about the deal now. You didn't want to fight the PR campaign. You haven't gotten the deal done. You continue to have these quotes on the record about, yeah, we're going to beat the Big 12. Well, if you don't, that is going to blow up from from a perception standpoint in your face pretty hard. And, and you know, the Pac-12 perception, I think, is pretty low across the board uh, nationally, at least outside of the Pac-12 fo- footprint. But even within the Pac-12, like that, I know a lot of Pac-12 fans who are really, really down on, you know, the whole situation, how the league looks, and it's it's not been great. So you have to be able to deliver there. And I think that is going to entirely uh, change or not change the the narrative around the Pac-12 conference as a whole right now. Fantastic stuff. Spencer McLaughlin, uh, get a good day off, rest of golf, and then get back at it. Check him out on Locked on Ducks, Locked on Pac-12 podcast. Uh, Spencer, thank you for your time, my friend. Hey, John, it's great to be on with you. Happy to come on anytime. There he is, Spencer McLaughlin. Love his energy, man. Uh, I was a guest on his podcast. That episode should post soon. And I said to him, why don't you come on my show and talk about all this stuff? Because he is sky high on the Cal Bears, Stephen. What, you, you, are you buying what he's selling there? No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but I, I love I love the optimism. And, I mean, you know, Wilcox is a great coach. Like, I had a lot of faith in him last year. They kind of failed me a little bit. You know, I, I've done my my – my pre my pre rankings of the Pac-12. I picked all the games. I had Cal at three, so uh, I got them below, below the four and a half. Well, let's see what happens. Uh, coming up, I'll give you what I know on the Pac-12 front. Plus, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the Ducks and the Beavers in the context that Spencer mentioned them. I agreed with some of what he said, but not all of it. Leave it here.
Anna is preparing the five at five, the five biggest stories as she sees them. They are rarely the same five stories that I think are the uh, biggest stories of the day, but she'll be joining us coming up. It's always entertaining. In the meantime, Punch It Audio, the best sound from all around. We've got it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Chris Haynes, uh, NBA reporter, plugged in with Camp Lillard. Says Damian Lillard just wants a shot. Just wants a puncher's chance. Punch it. And so from Dame's standpoint, I know he's going to go into with the mindset that he's been patient all these years and he wants to play on a team that has a chance. One thing about Dame that I can say, you guys know how close I am with Dame. One thing I can say about him, like he doesn't want to be on a team that is just stacked. He doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to have a team where it's just three all-stars or three superstars and then they go in and battle that way. No, he just wants a team that has a shot. And if you look at the teams that he's, he's been on all throughout his career, he's, he's never really had a shot. And now Joe Cronin, step, step, I believe Joe Cronin just finished his second year as general manager. So this is a different regime, but they're they're kind of selling the same or going over the same talking points. And so Dame is, Dame is trying to give the organization time to come up with something. That's all Dame is asking for, come up with something. Come up with something. Is and in most industries, this this would be all backwards. You know, you would never look at star employee and go, "Well, wait a minute, why why is that person being treated as if he's the owner of the franchise?" Well, part of the problem with Portland is they don't have an owner. There is no face of the franchise. It's just Lillard. I get it. He wants a shot. We've talked in circles about this. Um, you know, I think he's been more than loyal by NBA standards. But also, I will quote Don Draper. You know, when people say to me, Dame deserves a ring, I cringe. Deserves? Like, it, as part of every NBA contract that players should have a be entitled to the right to a ring? I don't think so. Look, uh, he's giving them time to come up with something. I guess that means he's being patient. He wants to be viewed as the good guy. But in the end, we all kind of know where this is going. It's a standoff between the past of the Blazers and the future of the Blazers, and Damian Lillard is standing firmly in the middle. Chauncey Billups, looking at the Blazers' draft picks, says they may be rookies, but they don't play like them. Punch it. You know, obviously we, we got work to do, Bill. You know, um, I'm so I'm just so happy that how Thursday turned out. And I think that already, you know, we've upgraded some talent, you know, on our team. And... The way that I see these guys is obviously their age, they're pretty young. They don't play that way, you know. Um, their IQ is different than the normal guy their age. Um, it's a reason why they're here. We handpicked all of them um, for those reasons. Handpicked. That's what a draft is, Chauncey. Uh, Chauncey Billups says they don't play like rookies. He better hope so because part of his job security and his future lies in the ability of Scoot Henderson, among others, to come in and contribute. Um, Henderson uh, talked in his Blazers news conference. Um, you know, he talked about playing in the G League. And, uh, and you know, as a rookie or a first-year player in the G League, 
telling veteran players what to do. Here's Scoot punching. You know, I, I'm, I'm blessed that I did the two years at Ignite uh, as a pro, you know, having to tell, man, Pooh, who's 20 years older than me, where to go on the court. So um, something I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to get comfortable with that, and, and I'm, I'm going to embrace it. You know, that, that's the thing I could do, embrace that. And embrace that, you know, I got a lot of responsibility, but, you know, it comes with, you know, just the work ethic. I always go back to that. You know, I work on things like that, you know, just talking and little stuff like that in my game that, that I think I can really go far. Yeah, I look, I, I like a lot of what Scoot Henderson had to say. I, again, though, I will come back to this. Like, the Blazers made the pick at three. They picked the best available player in their mind. I think they got a player that would not be there and would not have been available in a draft that didn't have Victor Wembanyama. Scoot Henderson could have been the number one pick in other drafts. And so I think the Blazers did the right thing by making that pick. Um, and I, you know, and I'm not going to say their future's bright because I'm not going to sell you a, a line of goods because the future could be dismal, like the near future. But you have to plan for your future. And, you know, just like we talked about the construction of the roster of the Denver Nuggets, it's, it's incremental steps that in the end, when you look back, you go, gosh, they did 15 things that made sense and, and helped lead them to you know, the Western Conference Finals or to the NBA Finals. It, this could be one of those steps for the Blazers. And so by virtue of that, they had to take it. Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC. He's talking to Joel Klatt here about NIL. Anybody else tired of hearing college administrators talk NIL? I am, but I also know how damn important it is. Here's Sankey, punch it. I don't think there's anyone right now who says we stop or we fully we, we pull fully back to where we were. Mm-hmm. But in essence, we have to think about the protections for young people so that they're not signing for what seems like a lot of money at 18 years old. And all of a sudden they're a first round draft pick at 23 and they realize there's an entanglement and now they're in a court case uh, without the type of cleanliness around these deals that, that would be much more optimal. Yep. We have to adjust this system. Yeah. And we need help to do it, to do it properly. Yeah, need help to do it. But yeah, I kind of look back at the NCAA's role in that, and I, and I get it. I like Sankey, and I, what, what I like about Sankey is he came up in college athletics. You know, he was at Ithaca College as a intramural uh, advisor. That's where he started his college career, and he ends up as one of the most powerful people in college athletics. He knows the game. He knows the sport. He knows the organization that is the NCAA. But I also think that the NCAA blew this in such a way that it's going to be hard to put this thing back together again without you know there being a lot of collateral damage. And I think that's what we're seeing. I agree with Sankey. You need the college game needs help. And this is one of the things my wife told me from her convention was that she was saying these high school kids are signing contracts with people and firms and they're guaranteeing two percent of their lifetime earnings whether they make the professionals or lot or not because they're not reading these contracts so if someone goes and becomes a teacher they still owe these people two percent of their contract like this is going to happen where it's going to be messed up and players aren't going to understand what they're signing because they just want to be part of the nil world and i i think there's going to be a lot of downfall to this as well as we go further and further unless there is like you know rules that cap these uh, and you know, help these young people out because they, you know, I understand from their point they want to make as much money as they can, but they're losing money in the back end, and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I I think they're going to need intervention. I also think that they, 
college athletics may have to make a decision at some point. Like, do they, you know, you're watching a draft in which several of the top players and many of the players picked in the first round could have easily either did skip college or could have skipped college. And so I'm just kind of wondering at what point, like, how different does college basketball feel if everybody goes to college and stays in two or three years? Will the NFL, because of the the fact that the NFL uses college football as a minor league system, will the NFL be, I, I guess, better equipped to handle, or the, will college football be a better place relative to college basketball? I don't know, man. I, I'm watching too much movement in college basketball and a draft that, to me, like I didn't know some of the players because either they didn't play college at all or they barely played college. And it bothered me on draft night. Antonio Brown doing a lot of media. Remember when he walked off the field against the Jets? He's talking to Tyreek Hill in this interview. Punch it. These guys don't even care. So now I come playing the game, I'm hurt. Like I'm in my zone, I'm super hurt. And it's like, yo, I might hurt myself more. And they're they not really trying to put me in a good position. Like, I'm not out here to hurt myself. I'm out here to help you guys win. I mean, getting the ball, help you move the chains, get in the zone. So right now, we had a different time right now. You guys not trying to see none of that. You guys is mixing me with, like, he don't want to work with me. I'm paying him. You don't want to throw me the ball, and you making me like I'm crazy. So it's like, I'm crazy? F*** all you motherfuckers. I'm out here. <laughs> Antonio Brown, is he helping himself, Steven? Or hurting himself by doing media. I get why he's going public. I'd say no. I'd say that's hurting him. I mean, it, it, it's not really making sense. I mean, I maybe he's just crazy. I don't know. I don't want to say anything bad that he's crazy because he might come after me, John. But I don't think he's helping himself with these type of things. Like, we all know, like, he just went off the, went off the end here, off the edge. And he freaked out and he left the team and he'll never be back in the NFL. Yeah, and I think uh, I look at him now. He's got this lawsuit where players are – suing him for withholding their pay and i think he's gone public in his own way here to try to uh, rectify his image but i'm not sure it's going to help him i want you to leave it here you got the bald face truth statewide i got some thoughts as i promised on the ducks the beavers we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the bald hey, sorry truth. to interrupt the podcast but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.